It is Friday, February 18th, and this is People Every Day. We made it to Friday, y'all. It's me, your host, Janine Rubenstein, and we've got a lot of great stories for you to talk about with your friends all weekend long. So let's get into what's been swirling around on my newsfeed. It's expensive to be made. It's expensive to be Erica Jane, a.k.a. Erica Girardi, who has a new $2.1 million lawsuit coming her way. It's another legal battle for the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills star in the aftermath of her estranged husband, Tom Girardi's alleged embezzlement activities. The suit claims that she, quote, aided and abetted her former husband in his law firm Girardi and Keese's alleged financial wrongdoings. Erica, who's 50, and Tom, who's 82, are facing multiple lawsuits surrounding fraud allegations, including one in which she and Tom were both accused of embezzling settlement money from families who lost loved ones in a 2018 Boeing plane crash. Now, a lawyer for Erica Girardi told People Erica had no knowledge or role in any of it. The focus should be on Mr. Girardi his law firm, and anyone else who enabled what he did. Piling on Erica may generate publicity, but it's without any basis in reality. Well, for the reality star, the drama is getting more and more real. In other messy divorce news... Are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? You're what's wrong with me. It's a broken Vegas. Oh, that's stop. better. Stop. Oh, that's much stop. better. That's stop. Right. stop it. The stars behind that argument from Mr. and Mrs. Smith are still steeped in real-life issues. Brad Pitt is now suing ex-wife Angelina Jolie for selling shares of their winery to a Russian oligarch named Yuri Scheffler. The two were together for just over a decade and separated in 2016 over irreconcilable differences. And they've been to court numerous times, mostly for a custody battle over their six children. Pitt and Jolie bought Chateau Miraval, a winery in Corrins, France, in 2008. Now Pitt is suing his former spouse for selling her shares without his consent. Wow. Six years later, and these two are no less at odds. And now it's time to discuss another topic that keeps on going and going, COVID-19. While we finally have vaccines and booster shots, huge precautions around major entertainment events like award shows are still being taken, while others like Coachella, not so much. So joining me now to give a refresher on the COVID landscape and its impact on entertainment is People's Marissa Charles. Hey, Marissa. Let's go back to December real quick when the Omicron variant was really spreading like wildfire. It seemed like everyone was getting it and more than a few celebrities spoke out about their positive diagnosis. And some people even compared it to March 2020 all over again. So Flashback Friday, remind us all of how Hollywood was impacted by that surge late last year. So December the 18th, Saturday Night Live, that episode, Paul Rudd was supposed to join the Five Timers Club as a host. And they had to scramble because this Omicron surge started to go into full effect. So they only had Paul in the end, Tina Fey, Tom Hanks and Keenan Thompson. Um, you know, it was supposed to be a big thing because it was just before Christmas, you know, the final show before Christmas. And unfortunately, that's what happened. And December the 22nd, sort of fast forward to then, and the Critics' Choice Awards were postponed from January the 9th, which was the same date as the Golden Globes. There's been no new date announced for that. And January the 18th, it was announced that the Grammys were postponed to April 3rd in Las Vegas instead of airing on January the 31st. 
Well, we're now belatedly in the thick of award season, and I know a lot of people are excited about the Oscars. The Academy Awards are airing on March 27th in their usual location at the Dolby Theater in L.A., but there's been some flip-flopping on the COVID protocols, right? So so what have they planned and, and, and what's going on now? It's all really confusing. They were originally planning, supposedly, not to have a proof of vaccination, just a negative PCR test or rapid test the day of the event. So then they changed that. New protocols have been announced. So all guests and nominees now have to show proof of vaccination against the coronavirus, as well as two negative PCR tests in order to attend. 2,500 are expected to attend this year, which is a lot more than the more scaled back show they had last year. A spokeswoman for the Academy did speak to the New York Times yesterday, and she said that performers and presenters will have to undergo, I quote, rigorous testing, but they will not be required to show proof of vaccination. That said, mask requirements will also vary depending on where in the theatre attendees and nominees will be sitting. And so you have the nominees and their guests will be seated, you know, in the orchestra bit, in the sort of front bit of the uh, Dolby Theatre, and they will not be required to wear face coverings, etc. But they'll be spaced out a bit more than usual. I mean, it begs the question of, of what's the thinking behind that. Essentially, to me, it reads like they don't want to deter any nominees or presenters or anything like that from taking part. But Coachella and Stagecoach festivals that are taking place in April, they're not putting in any restrictions at all, which is kind of wild to me and a lot of people. I've been to Coachella. It gets packed at that place. So tell us what's happening there. It's a, it's a bit like the wild, wild west out there in the desert. So on Tuesday this week, the official Stagecoach Twitter account posted, Festival admission update. As we prepare to spend an incredible weekend in the desert together, we are announcing that there will be no vaccination, testing or masking requirements at Stagecoach 2022 in accordance with local guidelines. Wow. And then... Coachella's social media accounts haven't posted yet, but they did update their guidelines and safety rules on their website. Festivals won't be requiring masks, proof of vaccination, or a negative COVID-19 test. And again, they say that the rules are subject to change at any time as determined by federal, state, or local government agencies, artists, or the promoter. As I mentioned earlier, there is a new COVID variant on the rise. It's called BA2, and it's a subvariant of Omicron. So I'm just wondering, and neither of us are scientists, so let's do our best here with what we've been able to gather. But what do we know about this new variant? Do you think this could change Oscars, Coachella, Stagecoach, all of that stuff that people are, are really excited about? According to CNN, they say that this new variant, I'm quoting them here, say that it may also cause more severe disease. It appears capable of thwarting some of the key weapons we have against COVID. And this is according to new research, which has yet to be peer reviewed, I have to say. It features some of the worst traits of the older variants, like Delta. Um, oh. And it also, like Omicron, um, appears to largely escape the immunity created by vaccines. Oh, my God. I'm so over it. I mean, I want everyone to be safe, and it just seems like one thing after the other. But thank you so much, Marissa, for taking yes. me into this, and, and we'll see how all of this plays out very soon. Thank you. 
All right, it's Friday, and you know I'm not going to send you out into the weekend without some new music recommendations. We've got some great tracks to get into, and then later, baseball publicist Eric Kay was found guilty yesterday in the overdose death of Angels pitcher Tyler Skaggs. We get into his drug trafficking scandal after the break. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We are back, and it's New Music Friday, where I take you through the latest music news and what to listen to this holiday weekend. That is right. You have an extra day to check all of this out. We have not gotten a new solo single from What's Poppin' rapper Jack Harlow since 2020's Tyler Hero, but the wait is over. Yesterday, Harlow teased a new music video on Instagram where Young Miami followed him into a nail salon, which left most fans wondering what to expect from the new song, Nail Tech. Luckily, they did not have to wait long. When midnight came around, he dropped the song and video simultaneously. That's LV. Walk around with my chest out of my skin smooth. I'm healthy. I'm in a mix and I'm handshaking, but most of y'all can't help me. Most of y'all ain't wealthy. Most of y'all just dress like it. I caught the vibe that y'all giving off and I'm trying to make myself less like it. This chick got a little porch body. I might Jack has done a lot of collabs recently, but this new solo track is going to give you a reason to dance it out today. Now that right there is some funk and the smooth sound of Silk Sonic. I know you all saw Anderson Pack last weekend in the Super Bowl halftime show playing drums for Eminem, but did you know he and Silk Sonic band member Bruno Mars also put out this cover of Confunction's 1982 Love Train to spread some love around for Valentine's Day earlier this week. If you are still trying to make up for some plans you did not make for V-Day, turn this single up loud and make it the soundtrack for your night to score some extra points. And lastly, to get you into the vibe for the long holiday weekend, we have Kid Cudi's first new song of 2022, Want It Bad. As many of you know, Kid Cudi has been publicly wading through drama with his longtime collaborator, Kanye West. Cudi wanted to make sure that among the chaos, his fans knew how much their support meant to him. So he took to Twitter to say, quote, I really want to say thank you for all the love y'all been giving me the past few days. You have no idea how much you all mean to me. I am forever grateful to have so much love and support from all over the world. And I won't let y'all down. I love y'all. Well, I'm sure fans appreciate the love in word and in song. 
Now for a serious story that's gaining traction. On July 1st, 2019, the Los Angeles Angels were on the road preparing to play their division rivals, the Texas Rangers. On that trip, the Angels' 27-year-old Tyler Skaggs, a star starting pitcher, passed away from a drug overdose in his hotel room after taking counterfeit oxycodone pills laced with fentanyl. The pills were given to him by Angels communications director Eric Kay, who's 47, and who was charged with drug trafficking Five Major League Baseball players took the stand discussing how pervasive drug abuse was within the Angels organization and Kay's role in providing players with the illicit drugs. Yesterday, Kay was convicted and faces 20 years to life in prison. So joining me now is staff writer for the LA Times, Bill Shaken, who has covered this story extensively. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us to talk about it. Good morning. Give us a little backstory on Tyler Skaggs to start out. Like, what kind of person was he on and and off the field? And then, ultimately, what led to his unexpected death? Tyler was actually a a homegrown player, if you will. He was born in Southern California, grew up there, was drafted by the Angels, traded away, and then was happy when the Angels traded back to get him. He had struggled with injuries and inconsistency, but was just starting to turn the corner and come into his own as a successful major league pitcher when unfortunately he passed away. The players keep their world a closed circle. And I think one of the things that came out in this trial was that there was evidence that there was use of these illegal opioids. And, you know, what did the angels know and when did they know it will be a question for a civil lawsuit that the Skaggs family has filed against the Angels and hoping to get some answers to those questions. Well, let's talk about Eric Kay's role within the Angels organization, both officially and unofficially. So testimony stated that he'd been supplying players with painkillers like Oxy and Percocet since 2016. So how did he become the guy, I guess, like who was obtaining and distributing these drugs? Eric had unfortunately had issues with drug addiction over the years. He had been to rehab on multiple occasions. Mm. Uh, The Angels always try to support him and welcome him back to the organization uh, when he was complete with his rehab. In baseball, you're not gonna get prescription opioids from your team doctor just because you're not feeling well. If you have surgery, perhaps, you'll get a prescription to help you manage the pain. So somehow, and we don't know exactly how, people were able to associate that Eric had access to some of these drugs. And Mm. as a publicist for the team, his job was to work with the players on a daily basis. And ultimately, and this is not specific just to Eric or to the Angels, but the people who run sports are the people who are the players. They're the ones everybody comes to see. They're the ones who make the most money. Yeah, And you want to keep those people on your side because these are the people you need to help you in order to do your job successfully. There's a question for the legal system, which is, did Eric Kay give Tyler Skaggs the pill that ultimately had the fentanyl that caused the overdose that took Tyler's life? That was a narrow legal question, and the jury in Texas found that the answer to that was yes, and that is why Eric Kay is going to prison. But I think there's a larger issue here. Eric Kay in no way meant to do this. He didn't know that the pill that he was giving Tyler Skaggs was laced with fentanyl. Uh, That's a symptom of an addiction and a symptom of a larger problem for society. 
Our legal system is not equipped right now to address that. And our country ought to figure out how to do that. Take us into the trial itself. I understand several players testified with immunity, notably pitcher Matt Harvey, who said he wished he had advised Skaggs against using pain medication recreationally, but viewed himself at the time as being a good teammate and helping him deal with pain. So Harvey made it seem like this wasn't an isolated incident with the Angels, but a wider problem throughout the sport. So so how widespread would you say drug use like this is across the game? Like, did the Angels in baseball turn a blind eye to this? Once the autopsy came out and revealed that he had died because of a fentanyl overdose, I had a player actually reach out to me who doesn't play now, but used to play. And he said, I think here's what people have to understand. A lot of us for a long time have been trying to use marijuana to manage our pain. And baseball says, no, we don't allow that as part of our drug policy. So those players said, well, we got to manage our pain somehow. We got to get on the field every day. So some players had turned to opioids. The first year after Tyler Skaggs died and the autopsy was done and people found out why, Major League Baseball and its players union agreed, you know what, we do need to be testing for opioids because we don't want this to happen to another player. And as a result, marijuana now is something you can use and there's no risk of suspension. In the two years that that policy has been in place, no players tested positive for, if you will, recreational opioid use. How do you think this relates in any way to the wider epidemic in America of painkillers leading to addiction? And what responsibility does Major League Baseball have to its players to give them the help that they need? They do make treatment and counseling available. And in fact, if you were to test positive for opioids, that's the first thing that happens. It's not like you just get suspended in a punitive way. They want to try to get you help. But I think your, your initial point is the more relevant one. It's a larger issue in our society. And baseball players or other athletes may be more talented as far as their athletic ability. They're certainly a lot richer, but uh, they're no more immune to the risks of drug abuse than anybody else would be. And in fact, might be uh, at a higher risk because they have the ability and the means financially to go go get some of those things that maybe other people don't. Thank you so much for your expertise on all of this and taking us into this story. All right. Thank you. Before I let you go off for the weekend, we have to talk about Sophia Giroux, Victoria's Secret's newest model. Giroux is a 24-year-old model from Puerto Rico, and she made some history, becoming Victoria's Secret's first model with Down syndrome. She's a part of the brand's new underwear line and campaign, Love Cloud Collection, and she began her career in 2019 and made her New York Fashion Week debut in 2020. Giroux just took to Instagram to celebrate the news, writing, one day I dream of it. I worked for it. And today it's a dream come true. I can finally tell you my big secret. I am Victoria's Secret's first model with Down syndrome. She hashtagged the post, no limits, and I love the inclusiveness. Well, I hope this story was something to make you smile. And I want to thank you all for listening to us this week. We'll be back Monday with a brand new show of People Every Day. People Every Day is produced by Chrissy Lindquist, Tony Mantia, Madison Lesby, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, and the great team at Pod People. Edited by Morgan Foose and Carter Wogan. People's producers are me, Janine Rubenstein, and Charlotte Triggs, with help from Eliza Sessler and Fallon Harge. Executive produced by David Flumenbaum and Zoe Ruderman. <laughs> 